0: Mezzo-soprano Susan Graham, tenor Paul Groves, conductor Sir Andrew Davis, and stage director Stephen Langridge are
1: backstage at Lyric. What it lacks in length, it makes up for in amazing music. And that's that's where I get to tell the story, is through the, the incredible gift of the music that he's given to this character.
2: You know, I've been doing this for 12 years quite a bit, so I feel that in that time I've kind of developed what
3: my Faust... Is. damnation is actually it's not an opera i mean you come see it you'll think it is but it wasn't designed he didn't write it as an opera but it's a sort of opera of the mind in a way and it's one of the most i mean of all the operas that he did write it's, it's probably the most dramatic in a sense so i'm delighted that actually this is a in a sense a very good introduction to Berlioz for our audiences
4: you know it moves at a kind of mtv speed and uh, well, really, it does. You know, it's it, it, I, I happen to love uh, a lot of Wagner, but it isn't like that. <laughs> this one, um, it you know, it goes really fast. It's almost like you know one of these flick cartoon books at, at times. And, and, and really, you get the full thing. So I, I'm hoping that there will be some people in there whose first experience of of music theatre it is. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric.
0: I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. We'll be playing an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for the first work by Hector Berlioz ever produced at Lyric, The Damnation of Faust. For those of you who may not be aware of the Discovery Series, it's panel discussions featuring singers, conductors, directors, and opera experts. We do one session per opera, and they usually take place a few days prior to the opening of each production the Discovery Series is open to the public and it's a great way to get up close and personal with our artists. You can check out our website at lyricopera.org for dates, tickets, and complete Discovery Series information. We include all of the Discovery Series sessions as part of the Backstage at Lyric podcast. And now, on to the Discovery Series panel devoted to The Damnation of Faust with Paul Groves, who's singing the title role, Susan Graham, who's portraying Marguerite, lyric music director Sir Andrew Davis, who's conducting, and stage director Stephen Langridge, who's staging this new production in his lyric opera debut. These four brilliant and very thoughtful artists truly illuminate this very challenging work for our audience. I'm your host for this session, and I hope you enjoy it. It's so great to see all of you tonight. I'm Roger Pines, dramaturg at Lyric Opera of Chicago. I want to welcome you to our Discovery Series session on Berlioz's The Damnation of Faust. Before we go any further, I want to ask everyone, please turn off your cell phones and any other electronic devices that you may have brought with you. Thank you very much. If there is time at the end of the session, then we will call for questions from the audience, but we have a four-person panel, and there's a lot to say. Um, It's always exciting when Lyric tackles the work of a particular composer for the first time, In this case, many of you have been longing for us to take on a work by Hector Berlioz, and that time has come at last. So we're fortunate to have four crucial members of the Damnation of Faust team with us this evening, and because we do have a lot to cover, I will keep the bios short. Marguerite is mezzo-soprano Susan Graham's seventh role at Lyric, She's recorded it, she's sung it on stage in last season's New Met production, also in Lyon, Brussels, La Scala, and Japan's Saito-Kinan Festival. Internationally French repertoire is one of her major specialties. She's especially celebrated as an outstanding interpreter of Berlioz. Highlights of her current season include Purcell's Dido and Aeneas on tour with Philharmonia Baroque, De Rosenkavalier, including the HD transmission at the Met, and Handel's Xerxes' at Houston Grand Opera. Tenor Paul Groves has also scored repeated successes worldwide in French repertoire. Berlioz's Faust is his fourth role at Lyric. He sung it in concert with major orchestras internationally and on stage at the Salzburg Festival and with the major companies of Los Angeles, Paris, Geneva, and Los, and, uh, Los Angeles, Paris, and Geneva. His current season includes Alva and Lulu at the Teatro Real in Madrid the title role of E. at the Canadian Opera Company in Toronto, and the title role of The Tales of Hoffman at Santa Fe Opera. Lyric's renowned music director Sir Andrew Davis conducted Faust and Tosca earlier this season, and he will also be on the podium for seven performances of Lyric's Marriage of Figaro. He's a passionate advocate of Berlioz, for whose music he's repeatedly shown a remarkable affinity in the most prestigious concert halls worldwide. His 2009 10 season includes concerts with the major orchestras of Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, London, and Rotterdam. And make sure to pick up his latest CD, which is Elgar's The Crown of India, recorded with the BBC Philharmonic. Making his lyric debut is stage director Stephen Langridge, whose productions have ranged from Giulio Cesare in Bordeaux to Otello at the Salzburg Festival and the world premiere of Sir Harrison Burt Whistle's The Minotaur at Covent Garden. His current season includes the Rigoletto in Vienna, Madame a Butterfly in Copenhagen, and a new work, Wake, by Klaus de Vries and David Mitchell at the Nationale Reise Opera in the Netherlands. As a project leader and trainer, he's worked throughout Europe, also in Africa, helping opera companies develop their education and access programs. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Susan Graham, Paul Groves, Sir Andrew Davis, and Stephen Langridge. Okay, this is a brand new piece at Lyric, nice. so uh, synopsis is definitely in order. So panel, see how I do. This is a tough one. I
2: feel, the, like, I'm, I feel like I'm in first class of British Airways here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when does the cocktail trolley come <laughs> <laughs>
0: The...
2: we started off well
0: yes. Yes. the disillusioned philosopher Faust is about to commit suicide when the strains of an Easter hymn revive his will to live suddenly the devil in the person of Mephistopheles appears Faust agrees to go off on a journey with him he conjures up a vision of Marguerite to enchant Faust the two travel to her town and eventually hide in her house Marguerite who's been dreaming of Faust is astonished when he reveals his identity Mephistopheles informs Faust that they must leave because Marguerite's mother and the townspeople will shortly appear. Eventually, the despairing Marguerite, whom Faust has abandoned, accidentally kills her mother with too much sleeping draft and is sentenced to death. Mephistopheles promises to save her only after Faust signs a document relinquishing his soul. He thinks they're about to save Marguerite, but then he grows terrified when he sees grotesque visions. He and Mephistopheles travel through landscape that grows increasingly horrible. Mephistopheles cries out to his infernal cohorts, and he and Faust fall into the pit of hell. Marguerite is saved from damnation and brought to heaven by angels.
1: (laughs) Amen.
0: (laughs) Okay. I generally like to ask our panels when they were first exposed to the music of the composer of the opera that we're discussing, and that becomes especially interesting with the damnation of Faust sing, since Berlioz's music is so completely distinctive, and yet it doesn't necessarily come into our life as a matter of course the way maybe Beethoven or Mozart might. Instead, we really have to seek it out. So, how did all of you discover this um, the music of Berlioz and what initial impact did it have on you, whether the Damnation of Faust or any other piece? Susan, did you first discover Berlioz maybe through L'Ennui d'Ite or Beatrice and Benedict? No,
1: it was Beatrice and Benedict. And um, I have um, to thank for that the fact that Anne Sophie von Otter was having lots of babies during the early 90s. <laughs> and she um, was scheduled to do these performances and a recording of Beatrice et Benedict in Lyon. Um, during this time and then she couldn't because she was about to have a baby and so uh, the role of Beatrice came open just before they were about to start rehearsing them and John Nelson who is a, a very uh, big fan and conductor of Berlioz music knew me and invited me to come and do a working session through it to see if I was you know up to the task and I finally convinced him I guess that he could take a chance on me and that was the first Berlioz that I ever sang and out of, just out of that came a, a small concert of Nuit D'Ete sort of in conjunction with the company that was recording the Beatrice and Benedict. But, you know, it's that, it's that kind of music that once it gets under your skin, you just fall crazily in love with it, or you hate it. <laughs> I find that people either love or hate Berlioz. There's very little sort of middle room, but I've obviously fell madly in love with it and have sung just about everything that he's written for my voice since then.
0: Paul, did you start with that piece also, Beatrice Benedict, or did you start well, with Damnation? I have done house? that
2: piece, but well, I've I've heard barrios from a very early age because my father was a choral conductor, and one of his favorite pieces was La France du Christ, which I've sung with Susie, by the way,
1: mm-hmm, and I've sung with Paul. Yes.
2: <laughs> she, she plays the Virgin Mary, and I just play. <laughs>
1: Careful.
2: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but anyway, I was I was exposed really early. Uh, also, my, it was one of my father's favorite pieces, so I heard it around the house when I was a child, and uh, and also the Te Deum, Berlioz Te Deum, and the Requiem, and things like that. Any of the big choral pieces, and there's you know in this piece, in all of Berlioz's music, there's there are tons of beautiful choral, choral works.
0: Yeah. It's amazing music. Stephen, did you hear a lot of Berlioz growing up or did um, you come I to think,
4: him? I think the first time I properly encountered Berlioz, I used to play in the youth orchestra as the French horn player and a French horn player. There were quite a few of us. We did the Symphonie Fantastique, you know, when I was about 15 probably. Um, and that certainly got under all of our skins and we listened to it all the time and thought it was fantastic and played the hell out of it um, in the concert. Looking forward to the party, which was going to be happening after the concert. A <laughs> very, very important part of being in a youth orchestra is the party later. When we'd, maybe I shouldn't tell you all this, but we'd turn out the lights and listen to recordings of classical music. Sad adolescence. <laughs> what can I say? Oh, yeah, I think that I mean, was the that first... Was the party? That was the party? Not, not only, but I'll tell you later.
0: Okay, oh, Andrew, you... The first piece that you conducted of Berlioz was what?
3: Oh, well, the first... Well, let me just tell you that the, first, uh, the first Berlioz I heard, funnily enough, was in the school choir. We did Shepherds Farewell from L'Enfance du Christ. Oh, yeah, of uh, Adieu des Bergers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, oh, this is nice. Um, <laughs> and then uh, th- I saw there was going to be a concert where they were going to play the symphony fantastique, and I thought, oh, that, I like this. Berlioz Japa, and so I went and I was sort of thrown against the back wall of the Constable in Ansel. I was just so astonished by what I was hearing, which was, you know, it was nothing like the shepherd's farewell from no. <laughs> trouble, but, but not, actually L'Enfos de Cris has become one of my favourite Berlioz pieces. So actually the first Berlioz piece I ever conducted was, in fact, Harold in Italy, um, when I was in university, which is a marvellous piece. Um, course uh, based on uh, Byron uh, with a big viola solo which was written for Paganini and when uh, Berlioz showed him the uh, the part, uh, Paganini refused to play it because there wasn't enough for him to play. But he, but he did actually come to the first performance, Paganini, and was so impressed with him that he gave Berlioz a huge sum of money which enabled him to compose Romeo and Juliet. So oh, that's um, nice. But yes, Symphony Fantastique is still the most astonishing piece. It was, uh, I mean, it was, it was written three years after Beethoven died, and, it, and it's the, one of the most revolutionary things. It sort of ranks up there right with the Rite of Spring, I think, in terms of changing the future of the path of music.
0: Well, the next question for you, Andrew, then, is why did it take lyrics so long to get around to Berlioz? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: well, um, good question. I mean, I still hope that some, one of these days we'll do the Trojans. Um, uh, and you may recall that, um, we had planned to do, um, Benvenuto Cellini a few years ago, and then, um, uh, for various reasons, it was changed to the Pirates of Penzance. <laughs> <laughs> but the nice thing about it was that the person who was going to be singing, uh, The cardinal, uh, that was Peter Rose, ended up singing A Policeman's Lot is Not a Happy One. (laughs) Uh, And the guy who was going to sing The Pope ended up being the Pirate King, so it was all very splendid. (laughs) Uh, um, So, uh, look, um, you know, Berlioz is a a great opera composer. Um, They're all very different. Beatrice and Benedict is, is a very difficult one because it has a lot of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And people have always, you know, been fooling around with what to do with it. Some people you know, <laughs> know, sing it in French and, and do the right. dialogue in Shakespeare, which is sort of doesn't work. No, that <laughs> Most doesn't things work. don't work with Beatrice and Benedict. Um, but as I say, uh, Cellini is a piece I hope we'll do sometime, and of course Trojans also. Um, this piece, But, I mean, this is, I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, and of course the thing about Damnation is actually it's not an opera. I mean, you come see it, you'll think it is, but... Um, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't designed. He didn't write it as an opera, but it's a sort of opera of the mind, in a way, mm-hmm. and and it's one of the most. I mean, of all the operas that he uh, did write, it's probably the most dramatic, in a sense. So, um, well, you'll hear more about and... what we're doing with it. But uh, I'm I'm delighted that actually this is a, 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 in a sense, a very good introduction to Bellia's for our audiences.
0: He gave it. Um... A little subtitle which I've never seen applied to any other piece. He called it a dramatic legend. And it was so, it was never meant to be produced on stage, but opera companies in recent years have indeed been discovering it, and I think in a big way. And Susan and Paul, both of you have performed, of course, in numerous productions of it internationally. So I know that both of you find great musical rewards in these roles, but you also consider them as inherently rewarding dramatically as anything you would sing in the regular operatic repertoire?
1: Honestly, I would have to say from my standpoint and my character arc, no. (laughs) Because there's so much of of what happens to Marguerite that is not fully fleshed out. The nature of this piece is that it goes, it's sort of um, episodic and it goes from uh, sort of with breakneck discontinuity from one place and scene and time directly to another one, and there's no real link sometimes between those those two scenes, which is part of the problematic nature of trying to stage it. but you know we can we can create kinds of links that that bring those two things, those disjointed scenes together. but I don't even appear vocally until the second act um, so. So when I come into the story, it's already, you know, the, the, a lot has happened already. And, um, and then there's only, I probably only have, what, 30 minutes of singing, if. Um, and, and so there's not, there's not a, a whole lot of time to sort of fully flesh out the character in the ways that, you know, I'm used to with something like, you know, Rose and Cavalier or something like that, that you're on stage all night long and you have lots of nooks and crannies of character development to hide in.
0: Paul?
2: Well, I've kind of worked out, you know, I've kind of worked out my own inner dialogue through all the, because there's lots of large orchestral sections, and I think that's one of the reasons why Berlioz, after he composed it, thought that maybe it couldn't work as an opera. But we have such great technology these days. I'm sure if he was around now and he could see what we could do with film and what we we can do with the stage that you just couldn't do then. You couldn't change an entire set in a really complicated set like we can here in 30 seconds. You just couldn't do that. So, But I've, in these large orchestral sections, like the, the Hungarian March and uh, the Dream, I've worked out an inner dialogue about what Faust may be going through during those times. So, I have worked, and I feel that you know, I've been doing this for 12 years quite a bit, so I feel that in that time I've kind of developed what my Faust is—it's and, and it's been a journey, but you know, I, I think I have.
0: Um, Stephen, does it help or does it create a hindrance for one to read Goethe's Faust in preparing to direct this piece?
4: Well, I think any dealing with Goethe's Faust is going to be a good thing to get into, you know, um, given that it's a work of genius and it's also where <clears throat> Berlioz started. Um, I think the interest might be as much in how different uh, the damnation of Faust is to Goethe uh, as in how similar it is. You don't need to read it in order to show up and and see uh, the story that we're presenting. um, Any knowledge of the other versions of the Faust myth uh, is going to be um, interesting in comparison to to what Berlioz has done. I find it interesting, given how much uh, uh, Berlioz admired Goethe, how different the piece is. It, it's what he it, chose to he, emphasize, and well, what he chose to emphasize and what he chose to change. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if we know uh, about how conscious those changes were, or whether he just loved the piece and then he wrote in such a, a sort of with a, such passionate drive that he didn't notice the changes he was making. I have no idea, but they they are significant, yeah. Andrew, here's a big question. What makes this piece
0: such a gift to a conductor who has the technical prowess and the stylistic awareness to do it justice?
3: What oh, do you think I do? <laughs> Need you <to> ask? <laughs> well, I suppose that's a vote of confidence. Um, Absolutely. Well, it's first of all, as uh, Paul just mentioned, there are, there are large chunks of uh, purely orchestral music. Which uh, show off the orchestra in, in a, an extraordinary range, from the most you know the grandiose in, in, in the march to the most delicate in this wonderful little uh, kind of spooky waltz mm-hmm. for the um, the sylphs, the dance of the sylphs, and then the wonderful minuet, which uh, is hypnotic in a way, isn't it? This this mm-hmm. music, and then suddenly dashes off in, into a sort of. Extremely virtuosic, brilliant uh, woodwind writing. Um, and and I think the, the, the range of colour that you get in Berlioz is, is quite unlike anybody else. Um, and so it's it's an ability he has to, to set a mood uh, with just the way he spaces a chord. A very good example of that is the opening of the big Invocation à la Nature, which is a big solo for Paul. And it starts in C minor. But I I won't bore you with technicalities, but the the whole spacing of the chord, and the the instruments, they choose like one flute, English horn, two trombones, and then the strings, but all in very odd sort of positions. And And it creates this... It, it, the instant you hear this chord, you know you're in some strange kind of different world. and it's a little things like that, that that make him such an original um, orchestral yeah. thinker. Yeah.
0: But you probably need uh, just physically, you probably need tremendous stamina, I would think, for this piece just because it's so, it's so complex. But and in short. <laughs> yeah, especially I mean, because we're doing the four parts with just one intermission. Yeah. So, do you find that you're physically sort of depleted
3: at the end of it? Yeah. Oh yes. Yes. I mean, because it, you know you can't you can't mark time with Berlioz, you, know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you can't just say. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Well, actually, you can't with anything. But um, there, there's it's the intensity. Not, not just of the, the loud and sort of fast and furious things, but actually even more so with the very intimate things. It takes a great deal of concentration.
0: You know, the, the tenor writing uh, in the Berlioz pieces, is it really formidable, I think, whether you're talking about Cellini or the Trojans, and absolutely a damnation of house. So, Paul, is this the most challenging role in your repertoire?
2: I think for now it is. Um, the, the reason it's really challenging... And unlike any other Berlioz piece also, is that for the first hour of the piece, it's mostly middle range, it's almost a baritone part. And then when Faust meets Marguerite, it becomes a extremely high kind of voix mix, real French tenor part. And then right after that, it goes back to the baritone part for the rest of the show. <laughs> So I don't know what, which tenor he was writing so for. What was he thinking? And <laughs> yeah. I just, you know, what I usually do is when I change costumes, I just put on some tighter underwear for that nice. <laughs> <house. laughs>
4: and change back again uh, before the end.
2: But we have to remember what kind you of, you know, tenors, <laughs> modern-day tenors don't sing like tenors did then. You know, French tenors then, they mostly sang like a baritone, and when it got above the staff... They would sing in a voix mix, really head voice kind of sound. And I guess that's what he was going for. But in no other role, in, in anything else I've sung for, you know, the tenor parts and Berlioz stuff, is it, is it this fragmented?
0: Yeah, because Aeneas is uh, difficult to toy on, but he doesn't have to sing a high C sharp, as far as I know. No, I have two of them.
2: Yeah. <laughs> After all this baritone stuff. So it's tricky, but, you know, over the years, I've kind of figured out a way to do it. You know, I was talking to someone the other day, and I said, if you listen to Nicolai Gedda long enough, then you kind of figure it out.
0: <laughs> Susan, besides Marguerite, you've done the leading female roles, Dido in the Trojans, and Beatrice, which you mentioned before. So they're high mezzos, as is Marguerite. So are the demands at all similar?
1: There are there are definitely elements that are that are similar. Um, Dido, of course, is is much more extended and, and has a an incredible range of, of emotion and sort of psychological writing. I mean she goes from a from a very sort of dolcissimo lyric love scene to you know cursing Hellfire and brimstone in the last act and sort of screaming at the top of her lungs. So um, but this is this is kind of comparable to Beatrice in terms of a little bit in terms of the kind of, the kind of spirit and the kind of um, emotionality and kind of uh, agitation that she goes through in some of the music, um, especially in the the duet and trio.
0: Yeah, because the trio moves awfully fast and is rhythmically so tricky for both of you.
1: Yeah, it's one of those stand and look at Andrew moments. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Stephen. <laughs> Is
4: that what's going on?
1: <laughs> That's what we're actually trying to do. But I, I, I mean, I, I feel that I was a little, a little remiss in my, in my answer a few minutes ago about Marguerite because what it lacks in length, it makes up for in amazing music. And that's, that's where I get to tell the story, is through the the incredible gift of the music that he's given to this character. Damur La Dantaflama is one of the great arias of all time, and it's, she runs the gamut of, of mad scene, broken heart, love, hope. Everything is in that, and, and, a, and a gorgeous tune and an English horn solo. <laughs> it's, it's all, it's, you know, So so what... When I say that she doesn't give the the opportunity for great expansion of character in terms of duration, it's it's really compactly, beautifully expressed in that music.
0: I mean, Faust in this piece reveals a great deal of his inner being in a way that the Gounod Faust doesn't do nearly as much. So, Paul and Stephen, both, I wanted to ask you, in your collaboration working on the character in rehearsal... What have you determined to be the most important thoughts and the character traits in Faust that you feel needed to be most emphasized on stage?
4: Well, I think what we've been doing is discovering, really. Um, Paul, as he said, knows the piece rather well. But looking at the piece and trying to find out what's going on as if we didn't know it uh, well. and. It's a weird thing when well, certainly as a director when you're preparing. First of all, you it's a sort of scatter approach, and you end you, you have too much information at some point. And then I think there's a sort of refining until you until with the um, artist you're working with you start to home in on what the what the centre of it is. And I, I don't think we've Paul and I've really necessarily said that's it, um, because it's a, a person that you're trying to develop. Um, and for all the fact that it is. Um, a broken-up narrative, when we drop in, whenever Berlioz chooses to drop in on the stories of these human beings, it's real. Uh, It's not cardboard cut-out at all. And we have to work out what's happened in between. We don't necessarily see all the development, more for Faust than for Marguerite, but we have to know what it is. So I guess we've talked about what is the story, what's happening to this person, uh, what are they trying to do? And one of the major things is... um, our hazard an attempt to define it is this attempt to the positive is to find fulfillment the negative is to escape the uh, everlasting ennui of the man to find some meaning in, in human action now that feeling
0: I mean in terms of sort of Frustration, misery, you know, tired of the world kind of thing. That's at the beginning of the Gounod as well. But, Paul, you, the way you start off the, the Damnation of Faust, how is that different from the way the Gounod Faust starts off? Because you've sung that role too.
2: Yeah, uh, well, I, I certainly think the, the Berlioz Faust has quite a few more wits about him. Because, first of all, he doesn't sign anything when the devil shows up. <laughs> I mean, we have to point out that the real differences, I mean, the two big differences for the Faust character between the Guno and the Berlioz is that he doesn't sign anything. He just says, all right, show me what you got, kind of thing. And then in the end, he's forced to sign by the, by the devil, by Mephistopheles, to save Marguerite. So in the Guno Faust, he just says, all right, I'll sign no matter what, you know, what goes on, I'll sign, I'll, I'll go to hell later on, but let's have a good time. So this one, he was like, eh, he's a little cautious about it. The other thing is, he doesn't call the devil. He doesn't say, you know, come to me, Satan, come to me and 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 show me what you can do. He rediscovers God, and as soon as he gives his life to God and rediscovers the Church, Satan appears. So it's pretty interesting. I, th- I think, you know, he has a little a little more smarts about him and a, he's a little more cautious than the, the other one. The other one is like Rake's Progress and all the other typical idiotic Faustian characters where, you know, the only person that doesn't know that he's the devil is the guy singing the part. You know, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's like 4,000 people out there going, he's the devil! I
0: know. Well, so anyway. Um, Susan, you had mentioned D'Amour l'argent de Flamme, which is, I think, next to the Roccochi March, is probably the best-known piece in the score. It's, that's the very first music of, uh, from Damnation of Faust that I ever heard, and probably the same is true for a lot of people. Um, but before that, you have another aria,
1: mm-hmm. the
0: aria that introduces you to us, and tell us about that one.
1: Well, it's the, 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 the King of Tulle and it exists in, in the Guno as well. But it's, it's to me it's a funny it's a it's a very great way to start an evening of singing because it's not taxing. It's it's very lyrical. It's a pretty sort of three verse song that's that tells a very touching folk story. And and the way that it usually is, is set is that it's sort of a it's it's kind of a, a mindless she's preoccupied with something and she just sings this this little sweet song to sort of calm her nerves um, and, and sort of settle, settle her agitated heart. And the way that, that we've done it in this production is that um, suddenly by the end of it, she's sort of singing it absently, but suddenly the, the words of this story, which is a, a story about a man whose beloved has departed and left him a beautiful golden chalice that he keeps and then at the very end he tosses it away and never takes another drink again because he himself dies, presumably of a broken heart or whatever the the faithfulness that he held um, onto her with and then was transferred to the cup and then it went away and he died. So it sort of sparks her, her thought and sets up everything that's about to, to unfold in front of her. She wants desperately to, to feel the real, concrete feelings that she's had about this man that she's been dreaming of. And then, lo and behold, he shows up. <laughs> but the, but the, this little Wadetulé kind of song is, is the sort of precursor to her heart opening up enough to be ready to receive what's about to unfold for her.
0: D'Amour L'Ardente de Flamme, on the other hand, is much more dramatic. It's a real sort of Shana almost. And I mm-hmm. wanted to ask you, Susan, about what you're saying there. And I wanted to ask Andrew about how that aria is structured because it really, I think, is an immense challenge in so many ways. So what is she it's talking about It's the moment when, there?
1: when she's feeling very abandoned. And um, again, this is one of those breakneck juxtapositions when months and months have gone by. You've just seen him... Flee the angry neighbors! Flee my bedroom! And then, two seconds later, it's many months later, and you know she's she's sort of waiting for him to come back, and he hasn't come back, and she can't really wrap her brain around why he hasn't come back. And for me, it's a little bit of descent into madness. Um, the 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 aria has a lot in it that, that you can talk about musically in a second since Roger has asked you to do that um, but it's um, she, basically she's telling the story of, of her broken heart and how devoted she is to this man and how when he was around everything was better and she spent every day looking out the window waiting for him and if he would only come back if he could only come back I know I could make him stay <laughs> I hate that um, but, you know, it, that's what makes it so real This character is so real And the words that she says uh, Stephen said to me, this was hysterical The day we were staging it was It was a huge moment Because it's a very, very I mean, you know, self-help books are written About this kind of thing And, and um, you know, she's, th- she's thinking Oh, I know I could get him back I know I could get him back I could just change him and I could make him stay And I know I could fix it and Stephen said, um, "You know, if she had any friends, this would be the time when they would all come to her and go, do 'Don't go there.' Yeah." And I said, "Probably if I went through my computer, I had to have hundreds of emails to back that up." Um, <laughs> Don't go there, but it's it's it makes it's very very timeless and contemporary, you know, situation she finds herself in. You know, sheesh. She should read that book called He's Just Not That Into You
3: (laughs)
0: Or go on
3: Oprah to talk about it So Andrew how
0: does all of that happen musically
3: One of the things that happens in the piece is is, you know she goes as Susan says it is a bit of a mad scene and she goes through um, some pretty hysterical moments but it always comes back to this main theme which we hear first of all on the um, English horn on the Coranglais. Um and there's even uh, we think we've changed the scene in a way because then we hear the students off stage and the, and the soldiers singing their song but we still come back to this beautiful melody at the end so it's it's it just it's it's kind of an idée fixe I think yeah. which is you know one of Bellio's things it's uh, you know we try to get away from this and it always comes back so it's a There's a kind of obsessiveness, I think, about the the totality of the piece. We've talked about Faust, we've talked about Marguerite, but we haven't said much about the devil.
0: Um, Stephen, how is he characterised in this piece?
4: How does he make his presence felt? Oh, gosh, that's a tricky question. So I'll slightly sidestep it and uh, (laughs) (laughs) look at it a different way. Working with... yeah. Fabulous. Working with, um, with John on, on that I th- the important thing about playing the role is that it, you can't act being the devil I guess is the first thing any more than you can act being God or an angel so you still have to decide what you need as a person on stage what, what, are, you, what are your objectives and, and how are you going to get there and we've, um, So we've been looking at it that way. There's the, in, in Goethe, coming back to Goethe, it's, it's clear there's, there's um, a prologue in heaven where um, God and, and Mephistopheles have a, have a bet about whether my servant Faust can be persuaded to, um, to sign up and, and go to hell. Um, so we, we, we know why he's playing the game there. That's very clear. Uh, we don't have that in, in Berlioz. We have, as Paul said, and it is fascinating, we have this figure who represents <coughs> evil, I suppose, if if you want to name it, um, who only crops up when Faust manages to get beyond his very rational view of the world and to uh, join other people in believing that there is something other than his scientific beliefs and and the things that can be identified as real now, in other words, the afterlife. Um, uh, when he's managed to find his way back, he Faust has managed to find his way back to to the uh, approach anyway, the innocence that he remembers from childhood, the innocence that allowed him to believe in God. Then suddenly, the belief in absolute good brings its its antithesis, which is um, absolute not good. Um, so what does he do? Then he plays his objective, which is to get the soul of Faust, and he plays it like hell. And he tries many different ways. And it's he's someone who's there is a character there which exists, and that's up to the artist who's playing it, uh, listening to the piece piece as as mad as they can, madly as they can. But but really, what we see is somebody who's watching their prey, and judging how to play the next. The next scene, all the time, met this man in church. Let's take him to the pub. <laughs> Let's take him to a dodgy cabaret and see if that pulls him in. That doesn't work. Let's feed his dreams. What he really starts to do is to manipulate the, the the dreamscape of these two characters. He brings them together, unlike in Goethe, he brings them together in their each other's dreamscapes, which is a fascinating, almost Jungian approach to the to the myth. And he keeps playing the opposite. He can play very casual at a moment. He can make a rude joke or he can be very intense about something. He just does what's necessary to get his prey down to hell. And it works.
0: Andrew, how is he characterised musically? Uh, He has, what, three arias, I think.
3: Uh, Yes, and they're ditties mainly, aren't they, really? (laughs) Song of the Flea is the most famous, I suppose. Um, But yes, he's, he's... He's he's he does a sort of chameleon act all the time, doesn't he? Yeah. He's he's trying different things to, to, and, and it, as you say, it's when when he when he makes Strauss and uh, Strauss. Where does Strauss come from? <laughs> 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 well, when he makes Faust um, <laughs> enter this this dream world. It's another Johann. Very, yes. The, <laughs> well, the there's thing. a nice little waltz, I guess, but. Um, um, <laughs> Not particularly Straussian walls. Um, <laughs> but he um, he lures him into this visionary world, and that's that's where, as, as you say, the two lovers first meet, which is a wonderfully poetic idea. And typical, you know, Berlioz rethinking things. And Berlioz never took anything for granted, musically, dramatically, um, you know, the, 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 in the way he... Looked at Virgil, you know, which whom he idolised when he when he when he uh, wrote the, the Trojans, Um, it's, sort of comes around the corner of things, you know, in a way that's that's just astonishing, actually, and that's the thing about this music and this piece, and that it does astonish you constantly, Mm -hmm. sometimes with very simple ideas, like the the little, um, the, the the little dance of the sylphs it couldn't be simpler and it's so delicate and then you have this scene for, in hell which is absolutely makes you gives you goosebumps and makes your hair stand up on the back of your neck it's just astonishing There's, uh, he, there, there is no one that comes close to him in, in terms of the, the, the power of the imagination I think it's just utterly spellbinding
0: um, we've talked about Marguerite and Faust as individuals, but we haven't talked about their interaction on stage. I mean, you've got a duet, and then you have a trio with Mephistopheles, and that lasts for, I mean, between the two of them, that's like less than 15 minutes that the two of you are on stage together, and you're never on stage again together. So in that brief time, how do the two of them respond to each other, and how is this love duet, what is this, what, how does this love duet make its impact
2: well it's difficult because it's you know we 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 really do see each other and in one three four minutes after we see each other for the first time really see each other then we're moving toward the bed
1: quick (laughs) and intense that's how that goes
2: it's never been quite that quick for me in my life so I would, I would have liked it to be but.
1: <laughs> Me either, by the way yes. Yes. <laughs> Just it. But,
2: but it's, it's genius Berlioz, though, you know, I guess <clears throat> like Andrew said we, I talk about Marguerite for at the, at the beginning, at the end of the second act, but we're doing this in, in basically two acts, for probably 20 minutes, I say her name over and over, I want to see her, and so we talk about each other and then when I'm not on stage before she sees me, she's seen me in a dream and she talks and talks. So when we see each other, we finally see each other after 30 minutes or so of talking about each other, we've already imagined what it's going to be like. So you can just, you know, and that happens in real life. You know, you if you meet somebody that you're really interested in, you certainly imagine what it's going to be like for days and hours and months before you actually get together. So...
1: But then the devil comes in, and and, and uh, well, yeah. He the, the townspeople come in and start interrupting everything, and mom is banging on the wall next door, and and then the devil comes in and interrupts. And
2: yes. it's like a censorship, really. Yes,
1: that's when the right camera pans. the pan good to juicy the,
2: parts come in, devil comes in. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, But you know, the, the, the love duet is really. I mean, it, that's that's sort of the consummation that they have. That, that we are all a part of. Be- and the music is, is you know, beautifully co- constructed so that he sings a phrase and I sing a phrase and then we join up and we sing a phrase and we go up to really high notes together and then we come back off and then we talk, have a little conversation moment. And then and it's very, it's, 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 it's a proper love duet really.
3: Mm-hmm. And then there's this extraordinary thing, the end of this duet sort of, it sort of degenerates um, they, they, they sort of stop talking and they just say, he's saying, come, and she's saying, oh, yes. And, and, and musically, there's this weird thing where the whole orchestra's kind of dying away, except for the cellos and basses who are getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And, crazier. Uh, and sort of. Uh, and then it bursts into the, 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 the big chorus when, the, when the, um, the townspeople come in and spoil everything yes aren't, aren't they singing about Marguerite's mother and they're talking about Mother
0: Oppenheim and that made me think does Marguerite have a last name
1: Marguerite Oppenheim. Marguerite
0: Oppenheim yeah. so speaking of the chorus they really do have the most amazing role oh, in enormous. this piece so Stephen um, they move from scene to scene to scene so who are they actually playing
4: from scene to scene it's the biggest decision you have to make doing this piece as a director because People are always saying it's not an opera, of course. I think it is. Um, uh, um, for all sorts of reasons, which we could go into or not. But um, one of the, the things that's led people to believe that it shouldn't be staged is that w- w- is the impossibility and the impracticality of of what Berlioz has done with the chorus from a theatrical point of view. In other words, he will ask for the chorus to be a bunch of devils, and then a couple of seconds later, I'm being uncharitable, 30 seconds? <laughs> angels. Now, with a, even with a huge costume department, there's no chance <laughs> or t- at all of doing a quick change. It can't be done. They go from being uh, riotous drinkers to being will-o'-the-wisps in a very, very short... Well, without time to go off stage. So once you have discovered that, when you look at the piece, we still want to tell the story, but how do we find who these people are that allows the story to be told and allows them to play um, those roles, even if they're not being those uh, people, if you understand? because at least uh, m- m- they provide the context, the social context, um, but also the the, the sort of uh, um, Mephisti- Mephistophelian. That's not yes. bad, is it? That's good, yeah. Uh, the Mephistophelian. So f- with f- an, f- an English accent, it the, sounds right. It sounds okay, yeah? Okay. <laughs> the diabolic context um, <laughs> uh, uh, as well. So then we have to make a decision, because... They are human beings who will be actually standing literally on stage and singing and they will be literally actually wearing something. So who are they? And um, what is the centre of their role? And what um, George Siglides, the designer, and myself decided is that we would make them the um, angry neighbours or the neighbours... That's the centre, and the reason for that is that's really the first time that they step forcefully into the drama, rather than providing um, a context for a particular scene. So they actually have a role at that point. Um, also, because in all the Faust versions, they're always the people who are uh, horrified or, or or whatever by by Faust's um, behaviour, and uh, over. Christmas. I found myself in a very small um, place called Staufen in the south of Germany, which is where the the real, the original Faust, the one who actually existed, who they assumed must have had a pact with the devil, died. And this is a place of net curtains and neat gardens, um, and and one imagines it always has been. And those are the same people who got furious and chased him out of towns or whatever. So that's that's who we picked. That's who, we, who we've made them. As far as the choruses, music, Andrew. Um
0: what do you think is the most beautiful music they sing
3: oh the dream passage I think it's also the most difficult in a way because it's very um, it's very delicate and very delicately accompanied by the orchestra but quite complex at the same time so it has to be very accurate and and precise but at the same time totally magical and that's uh, those are always the hardest things to do um, but again the the you know, the, the, the range of the chorus is, is immense from, from that beautiful and then the sort of fairly conventional religioso kind of scene in the church. And then the, the devil, I mean, the, the pandemonium, the, the men's chorus of demons is quite extraordinary, including this ridiculous made-up language that Berlioz wrote, you know, made up himself. they sort of talking this fiendish it's, it's, and it's lots of X's and K's in it everywhere.
2: Diff-diffs
3: <laughs> <laughs> and, it's like, and, and it's
4: things. Basque or something.
3: Yeah, it it yeah. looks like Basque, actually, yes. <laughs>
4: um,
3: uh, uh, so uh, it's a great challenge for the chorus, and I'm happy to say that, once again, our brilliant group of men and women are covering themselves with glory. And, and I must say they've been marvellous dramatically, too. Yeah, they,
4: fantastic. You they, couldn't actually achieve that in a lot of places. No. So,
0: the orchestra is sounding fabulous too.
4: Well, that too, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, Stephen, where did you begin, uh, you and your design team, in determining what your visual approach to this piece was going to be? Because it is contemporary. It's Because there's really no way I'm supposed to do a traditional view of this piece on the stage. But you've
4: put it into... The 20th century. Where did you sort of start? Well, we started with the piece, um, rather conventionally, um, looking at it in in detail and and trying to, um, well, just just that, looking at it in detail. Um, what does it need? What does it need to speak to be itself? That's the question which we asked ourselves. Um, what does it need to be itself and speak directly to the to the public? Um, and then, of course, looking at other versions of the Faust myth as well um, and how they related to their own, um, their own time. Um, you know, Goethe or Marlowe or whatever one wants to think about. And the way it works, certainly the way I work with, um, with George, is that we, we look at the piece and we don't really think about how we're going to do it initially. We just say what it is, what happens, really what, what it needs, the facts... The given circumstances, Stanislavski would call it, what has to happen in order for the piece to speak. And then we start. That's one part of our work. We look at the history, uh, the time, and so on. Another part of the work is is the um, uh, is the analogy. We say, what's going on here? That's like when one does this or when one does that. That kind of. And the job is to find a world where that story makes sense. uh, where even the illogical things make sense, that sounds ridiculous, doesn 't it? But you, 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 where a, a world where we have to create a world where we can go inside Faust's imagination, when we can go into his dreams, because that 's where the peace takes us
0: he 's not a philosopher in your version, is he he 's a mathematician? Yeah, he, well, We know what we know about <laughs> <laughs> Is that right?:
2: Yes <laughs> math, are you kidding i 'm a tenor
4: let's count the ledger lines now and again
0: how do you achieve the fluidity that's necessary because what are there there are more than 20 scenes in this piece aren't there
4: yeah 20 i think yeah
0: yeah um because at least if you look at the libretto you're going from the plains of hungary to Faust's study Mm. to the tavern to the woods how does that
4: happen on stage. Well that's another thing you have to you know I was talking about given circumstances and one of the given circumstances is the, the scenes go at a kind of cinematic pace you have a four minute scene in, as you said in Hungary followed by a, a four minute scene in uh, Leipzig followed by a four minute scene in a church immediately after um, uh, I mean, the only other piece I know that's quite like that is magic flute which is you know has a similar kind of rapidity um but that's we know that that requires scenery which originally which pops up so you have to you have to make um a, a world i've used that a couple of times I haven't know that word um you have to make a space that can uh, that can breathe and which can move without having to stop the piece from from one place to another that's the challenge of of what we're doing. One thing you can't do, I'm pleased to say, is something which is uh, 100% naturalistic, one scene after another, couldn't be done. Absolutely out of the question. Hooray. <laughs> that trap. But, but had I think gone. I think you've
3: succeeded remarkably in in which is which you do, you know, with with lighting and with well you I'm not give the game away. You had to come and watch it, but but it, the ability to actually change the mood so that we know we're in a, an entirely different space in a different kind of um, a different kind of psychological moment. I think is brilliantly done. I say so I think it's thrilling. Good. And thrilling. It looks fascinating. It's, it's it's really interesting to look at all the time.
4: And what, so, we, what we have, I suppose, are re- real people in, a, in an abstract space. I guess in short, that's what we're, that's what we're doing. Although, part three is Quite like an one. opera.
1: Mm-hmm. It is. <laughs> Believe it or not.
4: That's the part where we're staring at Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: really, yes. really
4: like an opera. <laughs> but that suddenly you've got a thing where where it, it, a very
2: concrete the, the rest world, of it's suddenly. sort of
4: metaphysical, and you yeah. know we're inside someone's brain, and then there's another one, but it's hiding behind curtains. Time. It's there in the text, you know. Somebody enters. There's a door implied. It doesn't happen anywhere else in the piece. Suddenly it's That's
1: sort, sort of the the Marguerite world. Yeah. It's her that's house, cool. literally.
0: Yeah. And that's what we've done. <laughs> uh, the last three scenes, if I remember, the ride the the ride to hell, pandemonium, and then Marguerite's apotheosis, correct? Yes. Well the apotheosis is one thing that I wanted to ask about. Um first of all, um how are you? Are you able to say to us how you're planning to present it? Because doesn't she, you know, in the libretto, she ascends just in death. she ascends to heaven. So, in your contemporary milieu on the stage, where are you putting her?
4: Well, I'm just trying to tell the story as as I see it, and um, the story is that she's condemned to death for killing her mother, as you said, um, and that uh, Faust. Signs up, as Paul was saying, signs up in order to save her. I find that fascinating. Every other Faust that you ever hear about signs up to have a good time, as Paul was saying, and uh, the signing up is, is an immoral action. In this piece, you could argue it's his first selfless act and it condemns him to eternal damnation, which is a, something that one might seem have a. Fair, does it? it
3: doesn't. No, it, doesn't. <laughs> it really
4: doesn't. Um, So he races to save her soul and uh, exchanges his own so that she doesn't go to to hell. So that's the story. Um, So we're trying to tell that story. On the other hand, the last scene is expressed by the people. As I was saying, when you asked me that question of who are the chorus and the chorus of human beings. And they're singing that and they're not dead. They're not in heaven. So how do we do that? Tricky. Try to do it without saying something you don't believe yourself is my approach. Um, in the, Susan, in the previous productions that you've done,
0: what, oh. how, how has that moment been treated? Because Marguerite isn't singing anything, but she's on stage. What have you been asked to do?
1: Most memorably. <laughs> I climbed a 150-foot ladder up into the fly space last year at the Metropolitan Opera in a white robe and ballet slippers. And that was her stairway to heaven. Climbing up, 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 up with rows and rows of angels, vertical rows of angels, welcoming me into heaven. Singing, Margarita, the little children, you know. And um, that is really, you know, this is my fifth production of this this, uh, piece, and That's the one I remember. That's the the ascent to heaven that I remember. Honestly, the other four didn't really address it so much.
2: I did that same production and that's the only one ever that Marguerite was ever on stage. Usually it's just Angels singing about her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Paul, how have you have you fallen into hell in any productions?
2: Oh yes, in every one.
4: I Literally or metaphorically? In one, you know?
2: <laughs> I, go in, I go into a grave in this one. I definitely fall into hell. And every, every one I've done,
1: I think. Yeah. That part sort of needs to happen. Probably.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, in the, the, the way this production at Lyric is being staged, you're able to move... Um, as Faust and Marguerite in a quite a natural way, correct? Because this, is, this piece has been stylized in so many other productions as far as those characters are concerned.
1: Well, th- one of the, the, the things that we've been working very hard to discover, obviously with through Stephen and through the rehearsal process is, as he said, how to make these real people, these are real people that something really extraordinary happened to. And so for the time the time that it's set in and the and the visual context certainly for my character I've got a real house. You know, it's it's just it's sort of very workaday. It's just very it's another day in the tired life of this woman who just really would love something extraordinary to happen to her. Well, it does. <laughs> and but but showing that there's an enormous amount of physical freedom because that's that's one of the things that I I really enjoy about doing contemporary uh, th- pieces in contemporary settings because it's a very naturalistic movement and the way that we respond to each other and it's very modern and it's very it feels like you know I'm sitting here talking to you right now using my hands and sort of jumping around and getting excited that's what that's the kind of thing that we're trying to just bring real flesh and blood to these to these very everyday people and and in that in that context it's 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 a it's a it's a very good tool for finding the truth in these characters. You know, she comes in and she takes her shoes off first thing and she rubs her feet because she's tired. She's been at work all day. You know, it's that kind of naturalism and, and it makes the character make a lot more sense because in many, all of the previous productions of this that I've done, she was more an iconic kind of representation of an, uh, the innocent, the duped innocent. And this is really, you know, she's... She, you cut her and she bleeds. I mean, this is the, she's a real person in this storytelling.
0: I mean, Paul, you, there's a DVD of your Salzburg uh, <laughs> performance in this role, and that I thought was sort of off the wall. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did
2: like 12 performances and I still have no idea what was going on. <laughs> It was um, it was amazing. Te- from a technical standpoint, it was really amazing, and there was some really cool stuff in it. I mean, you have to. It's a this piece is, is it's either a director's dream or a director's nightmare. It really is, and you know, Stephen has done a really beautiful job. You have to have an incredible imagination to come up with a production oh of this, yeah. and you know, he has. So but that, that production I, I really enjoyed some of it. I mean there was some I didn't understand, you know, mostly because the the guys that directed spoke Spanish and there was no translator. <laughs> so I came up with
0: my own idea of what it was. You know. <laughs> um, Andrew, there there's so little in this piece that's as far as getting it on the stage and get getting it played and sung that is practical the logistics of it are so tricky so are there any specific moments when coordination between pit and stage becomes quite challenging
3: no just the same as in any other opera <laughs> so, uh, no really i uh, no, i wouldn't even say in the pandemonium any... scene no, the pandemonium scene is one of the easiest oh actually why yeah. is that because all the men are standing down at the front of the stage and seeing <laughs> their hearts Looking out, at you know. Andrew. Yes. No, I mean, that's not, that's not a problem at all. It's the, um, it's the more delicate moments that are the, uh, the tricky ones.
0: The most important question, ultimately, that I wanted to ask all of you is, what do you want people to come away from this piece and this production with, in terms of food for thought? Because it seems to me that there's so much that it has to offer.
1: Sheesh. <laughs> Start <out> <laughs> Three
2: hours of, en- of enjoyment. I, you know, three hours of a fantasy world.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's music that, that goes straight to your soul and, and a, a kind of dramatic and, and visual thing that's going to just astonish you. Well,
4: I'm, I'm hoping that there's some people who haven't been to an opera who are going to come and see it. Because um, bizarrely, uh, you know, we think it's an odd piece, but actually, it's a. I think it would be a really good one, for a, for people who are not, to, you know, who don't know it as uh, uh, as well as as you do, um, for example, to come along to. So I, I'm hoping that there will be some people in there, whose first experience of, of music theatre it is, because you know, it moves at a kind of MTV speed, and uh, but really, it does. You know, it's. It, it, I, I happen to love. Uh, a lot of Wagner, but it it, it isn't like that. <laughs> this one, um, it you know, it goes really fast. It's almost like you know one of these flick cartoon books at, at times, and um, and and really you get the full thing. Um, uh, so, I'm hoping there's some of those in the audience.
3: Yeah, I think it's it's just a, a musical theatrical experience that's unlike anything that you know probably you've seen or or the, we've done in a long time. Um, uh, and it's it's something you hope that people come having had their imaginations kind of opened into into all kinds of different worlds just musical but also human uh, it's it's an incredibly human story um, and and that's that's the core of it really isn't it um, but with all this, extraordinary music by mm. a composer who there's never been anybody like um and, and in a way this man could unlock well only wagner really in a totally different way wagner could go down deep into the one's psyche somehow into the collective unconscious and um and uh, and 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 bring these things to life, and I think Berlioz does that in this piece in an extraordinary way.
0: Well, this group has a dress rehearsal tomorrow, and we've gone over our time already. So I want to thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content. And to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org.